We're in the Gospel of Luke, so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. I was thinking this week and reminded this week uh, that having arms is a good thing. (laughs) I'm sure we take that for granted, right? Just pause and think of all the things that we can do because we have arms. You can cover yourself up at night when you go to bed. You can uh, get dressed in the morning before you head to work. We're all thankful for that. We can feed ourselves breakfast, drink coffee with arms. We can drive. We can play. We can hug people. We can hold the hand of our spouse. Arms are a good thing, right? We use our arms almost daily, and we, we seldom really get much thought about the fact that we have them. They're just there. You could probably do a lot of things, though, if you just had one arm. My grandpa had one arm, Eli Martin. Lost his arm, uh, 18 years old, and he was working on some machinery in Michigan on, on the farm. He grabbed his sleeve and pulled his arm in. He lost it, eight inches down from his shoulder. So I only knew my grandpa with one arm. It, he was 18, and so I only knew him with one arm. I, I, at first, I thought that was normal. Grandpas only have one arm. <laughs> he could do a lot of things, though. He could drive a car. He could hold his kids, his his. His, his babies, not as easily as some with two arms, but he could do that. He could button his own shirt. He could do many things. I remember as a child, though, very distinctly, at six or seven years old, watching him tie his shoes with one arm. Go ahead and try that later today and see how that works. But he would do it. He would always wear tied shoes. And even though I watched my grandpa many times do things with one arm, I never wished that I would lose an arm and be like him. And he always wished that he hadn't lost his. And I'm sure mountain climber Aaron Ralston would agree. Aaron also knew, though, that some things are more important than an arm. I don't know if you've ever heard of the story of Aaron Alston, but on Saturday, April 26, in 2003, during a solo descent of Blue John Canyon in southeastern Utah, Aaron Walston dislodged a boulder, pinning his right wrist to the side of a canyon wall, and his arm was stuck. A very long, hard night followed, and the next day, he realized that calling out for help wasn't going to get him anywhere. No one was around. On Tuesday, he ran out of water. On Thursday, he realized that he would die if he couldn't get his arm free. After five days being trapped, running out of water now, and his arm starting to lose all feeling, he did the most horrific thing. He amputated his own arm. I won't go into details. It's gruesome to think. And you can read about it in his book if you so desire. But it took him about an hour. And he freed his arm, repelled 65 feet down, and hiked seven miles until he found some other hikers from the Netherlands who called for help before he lost any more blood. Now, why do I open my sermon with such a graphic story? There are times in life when we realize that to sacrifice something incredibly valuable is, in fact, the right thing to do in order to gain what is more valuable. And Ralston would say that he sacrificed his arm so that he could save his life and acknowledge that he made the right choice. Arms are great, but not more valuable than our lives. And he was faced with a choice, was my arm worth more than my life? Jim Elliott famously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And as we come to the end of Luke 14, 
Jesus is asking the same question. What are you willing to keep that will cost you more in the long run? What are you holding on to instead of Jesus Christ? There will be a great banquet one day. Will you be a part of that meal? The kingdom of heaven is a feast to end all feasts. But it isn't the kind of feast that you naturally think of. To, to enter this feast, it takes humbling. To eat, it, it takes humbling. To have its power course through you takes humbling. It's completely different than you think. In this chapter, Jesus shows you that it's, it's only the humbled who, who experience the kingdom power who enter his kingdom, who receive the benefits of the kingdom, who join in in this great meal to come. So here's my main idea. Here's the the thrust I hope to convey this morning in this sermon. The great banquet will be full of humbled people who have counted the cost of following Jesus. The great banquet will be full of humbled people who have counted the cost of following Jesus. And as we come back to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus continues in his exposure of these Jewish leaders and the rejection of him in the last half of Luke 14. As we saw last week and the week before, the Jewish leaders had concocted their own religion and had long ago walked away from the scriptures that pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. They seemed to be content in their own fictitious way to heaven. But Jesus in his compassion continued to preach to them to share with them this message and how they are to have a right relationship with God. And he continued to expose for them the holes in their religion and how it hurt themselves and hurt other people, refusing to serve those who were needy and how it ostracized others by making it impossible for them to join in. And so we'll look at the rest of Luke chapter 14 this morning and here's three points as we walk through. First, false piety exposed, verses 12 through 14. Second, lame excuses examined, verses 15 through 24, and then third, real discipleship expounded, verses 25 through 35. So let's look at the verse point here as we come to verse, verse 12, chapter 14, false piety exposed. Look at verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the the last confrontation in this meal that's been going on here in in these two chapters uh, during the the Pharisees' hosted dinner, and we looked at it last week, and he's already identified the hypocrisy of their religion, and he's exposed their self-promoting pride, and now he moves to the host, and and the host's temptation to, to invite only people of importance to advance their reputation and their position. And his hospitality, Jesus says, is is ultimately about himself. But God's desire for us is to live, to include others, to live for others. And he says, if you invite those that are not rich and famous, you'll, you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And why would you do this? If they can't repay you, you, you do this in response to God and what God has done. When you do things this way, he repays you, he says, for you'll be part of the resurrected righteous whom he, re- who he rewards in the day of judgment. They're to trade momentary honor here for eternal glory there. And I just wonder, just briefly, and this is the quickest point of all three this morning, I wonder, do, do we look forward to the resurrection as Christians? 
And I pray that we'd be as a church to live our lives knowing that the resurrection is coming. And so we live in ways that shows our love and our care for others, even though they can't repay us. I pray that we would be a people who are more concerned about people's future and eternity than we're about of our comfort and reputation on earth. And that we would also be a church that's able to look forward to death with calmness because we're convinced that there's something better beyond the grave. May we not live with this false piety as these religious leaders have. And he, and he exposes this again. Jesus is showing their hearts as needing a rescue. They have issues. And he's, he's trying to expose the rotten core of their religion that they had, they had made up. And we need to remember that these Pharisees of the day were not ostensibly wicked. No, quite the opposite. They were the religious and social elite of their time. Their concern for religious and social etiquette was not matched by anyone. But their rules and their laws were just a pale veneer of respectability. And Jesus continued to work at revealing their heart, their true heart motivations, and their true heart desires. But the question is, will they listen? Well, it doesn't seem so. And so he's going to move on. He, he gives another parable to show how the gospel will continue to go forth. And he's still speaking to the, to the Pharisees, even though they're rejecting him. So that's number two, lame excuses examined. Look at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So first, a little bit of a background on this parable here. The, there were major social affairs, and they always involved a double invitation. There was an initial one that gave the details and secured a commitment of the invitee to attend. But then at the actual time of the event, there would be a summons to the party. And that would be issued, and people would then respond and come. And these people are deliberately declining the second invitation by the host. Even though they once agreed, now, now that the feast is about to begin, they back out. They've got excuses. And they make really sorry excuses for the refusal to come. They could come if they wished, but as we find out, they had no desire to come. And they all probably believe they're in good standing with the host who invited them, and, and they're presuming on their position with him, so they decline to come. They, they decline thinking that, that they're going to receive another invitation later to another banquet. But this is it. This is the last. Many scholars differ on whether or not these excuses are legitimate or not. One commentator, Bloomberg, remarked that what all three share is extraordinary lameness. And I thought, yeah, they're lame. So we have three lame excuses, and it's going to be examined by Jesus. The first one, look at that one there. He says, the first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Imagine someone declining an invitation to a great feast because he just bought a piece of property, and he needs to go look at that. You would usually look at the land before you purchase it, unless you live in this area and the housing market's just going so quickly, right? <laughs> but furthermore, the, these parties would happen late afternoon. 
So, so there wouldn't be much time to evaluate land anyways. So that's the first lame excuse. Second, another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Again, the same type of lame excuse as the first, with the kind of expensive purchase, you would have looked at those ox before you purchased them. It's an expensive investment. So I, I doubt he actually didn't see them before he purchased them. And then third is lover boy. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. I mean, why wouldn't he want to bring his bride to the party and dance the night away? It, it, see, it doesn't make sense. Now, there's nothing wrong. Jesus isn't, isn't saying you shouldn't buy land, or you shouldn't buy ox, or you shouldn't get married. That's not what he's saying. What we find here is that each man despised the host's invitation and regarded him with disdain. Each one was exposed for what they were. They were a sham. These people simply didn't want to come to the banquet. They each found something more valuable for them than the invitation of the host to come. They were each pursuing their own interests. They were convinced that they had something better to do. And in this parable, Jesus is exposing these religious leaders. It's pointed to them. He's saying that each one of these leaders had the original invitation of God to enter the kingdom, and now the Savior is here. And each one has refused entry. They've each found something else on earth more valuable than entering into the kingdom of God. In fact, they're bending over backwards to reject God's offer of the kingdom through Jesus Christ. But God's generosity demands that his feast be attended. And so he extends his invitation to the people that the Pharisees hated. To the groups of the Pharisees that they would never want to be seen with. Look at verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has, has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Like many of the parables in Luke's gospel, this would have shocked the Jewish audience. The host, rather than inviting others from the same social circle as the original guest, instead turns to the streets of the city, bringing in the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame, and then goes out to bring the transients to compel them to come as well. If the, if the kingdom is taken away from the worldly wise and powerful and connected, it's given to the poor and the marginalized and those that are not connected. And we learn yet again that God has a continuing concern for the poor and for the broken and for the mistreated in society. And you need to understand, friends, that broken people enter God's kingdom, not healthy people. The more we admit our brokenness and need, the closer we get to the kingdom of God. And the more we deny our brokenness and need, the further away we get from the kingdom of God. Sometimes we, we hear of ministry to the inner city and to the poor, and we, we hear this term that they're the hard-to-reach people. We can hear about it in rough neighborhoods. 
the hard to reach. But in the Gospels, those who are broken and poor, those are the ones who flock to Jesus. Why? Because those who trust in their own riches, who seek power from men, who make religion a show and a symbol, those are the ones that are hard to reach. Those are the ones who continue to reject. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, it's the rich people, the powerful people, the well-connected people that have the most trouble believing and repenting of their lives to follow Jesus Christ. Why do they need Jesus? They, you know, in their mind, they think, well, I have everything I need. I mean, money coming out my ears, and I have property, and, and I have people to love. And they're full of earthly riches. And in that they can't see beyond this world. All they see is this world. And so it might be better to say that the wealthy people in the world are the hard-to-reach ones. Those who love their 401k more than they love Jesus. In God's kingdom, those who know they don't belong are the ones who won't miss out. In the kingdom of God, it's better to have a lowly and humble attitude than to be externally rich and powerful and healthy. Those who deserve the invitation oftentimes do not come, but those who know that they don't belong are the ones who will not miss out on the banquet. It's the broken people. And this parable, this story here in verses 15 through 24 show us that there are multitudes who reject salvation for the same lame excuses today. They enjoy the Creator's gifts but the creator himself, he, he's a bore. He's a waste of time for them. And they reject salvation through Jesus deliberately. Unlike Aaron Ralston in my introduction, they, they would rather have both arms than live with God. They would rather live five days than for all eternity. See, life on earth, I'm sure they would admit, uh, is not all that it could be, but it mildly satisfies them. It brings some level of joy. I mean, they don't have everything they want, but they believe life's okay. Life's pretty good. And their ability to see past the present is blinded. They're lost, and they don't know it. They don't see it. And they can't see how valuable Jesus is. And so they arrogantly reject him and his offer of salvation. I read of a story this week of Benjamin Franklin, who was a close friend to George Whitfield, the Puritan preacher. And it's said that Whitfield labored to press the gospel home with Ben Franklin on more than one occasion during their friendship, but to no avail. After Whitfield's death, Franklin wrote, Mr. Whitfield used to pray for my conversion, but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. Can you hear the arrogance in Franklin's statement? His shocking superiority in rejection of the gospel. And his speech is dripping with arrogant pride. And we get the same attitude here with the religious leaders in Luke's gospel. God had been pleading with Israel for centuries. The first invitation had gone out years earlier, and now the sun is here to gather them, and they won't come. They arrogantly reject the Messiah. And so Jesus turns his attention to the rest of the world. 
people would come, as we looked at last week, from the north and the south and the east and west. He would bring in Gentiles. And this would frustrate and anger the religious teachers even more. I mean, it's no wonder, right, as we read this, it's no wonder that the Pharisees are the ones who plotted Jesus' death. No wonder they were the ones that did it because they felt betrayed and wanted him dead. They wanted this just to be an elite group that could perform their way into heaven. And he, he just tells them here at the end of this passage, Jesus does, he crushes their dreams in verse 24. Did you catch that? None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. They wouldn't be in the high seats next to the host. They wouldn't be in the low seats. Jesus says they wouldn't enter. They had rejected the second invitation, the second invitation given by the Son himself. These leaders listening to Jesus wouldn't make it into the kingdom. They rejected him. And they would be there on that last day saying they know Jesus. But as we looked at last week, he would respond, I never knew you. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Friends, millions and millions are continually doing what this parable describes. They are invited to come to Christ and they will not come. They're busy with life here. Busy with work. Busy with school. Busy with relationships and raising kids. Ultimately, they're busy with building their own kingdom. So why do they want to submit into his kingdom? They're occupied with everything except Jesus Christ. See, the real reason people turn away from this eternal feast, I'm sure you know this, the real reason they reject the offer of Christ is because they don't want to be there. They have no appetite for higher things. They're satisfied in this world. And it's a sad, it's tragic really that men's desires are are focused solely on earth. C.S. Lewis famously said years ago in a sermon, The Weight of Glory, which is now sold as a book, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by an offer at the holiday to see. We are far too easily pleased. This world, the ambition of this world, is all mud pies in the slum. And all of it will leave you incomplete. Because there's so much better beyond this world. I wonder if you have responded the same way to the offer that has been given here week in and week out. I wonder if you have followed Christ or been content in the way that your life was already going. Are we too easily pleased with this world, with our jobs, with our families, with our homes, than God's kingdom? Does it seem worth it? Well, that's the first two points. He's not done. This is the third one. 
Real discipleship expounded. Look at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to him, said to them, excuse me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There is a great crowd following Jesus, and they're completely unaware of Jesus' destination. Jesus is, is going to Jerusalem, remember? Chapter 9, verse 51. And he's going to Jerusalem not to capture power, but to die on a cross. And the crowds don't understand that. The crowds seldom understand the deeper meaning of what's going on. What would the people think of, of the journey? What would they respond if they were asked? Is it a funeral procession? Well, it seems that Jesus thinks this way, but his disciples don't. They haven't fully grasped that. Or is it a march? Very likely, the majority of the crowd would, would believe this, that it's a march, hoping that Jesus would march right into Jerusalem for this mighty clash of the titans. Galilee versus Jerusalem. Peasants versus power. Laity versus clergy. Jews versus Romans. Jesus versus the establishment. This is a march that they've been waiting for, the march to just overrule power and to overthrow this wicked government. Or maybe they think it's a parade. Crowds grow when there's a parade. Everyone loves a parade, right? It's a celebration of some sort. So maybe this is a parade that didn't just join in. Maybe there'll be some candy thrown out on the way, right? See, Jesus knows their hearts. He's turned to the crowd. Now he's turned away from the religious leaders. He's turned to the crowd following him. And he, he understands the expectations they have of him. And, and, and in some, this is his words. He says, think deeply about what you're doing and decide if you're willing to walk with me all the way. Think deeply about what you're doing and decide if you're willing to walk with me all the way. Just so you know, and I'm sure you do, Jesus would, would make a terrible salesman in our culture. Just absolutely horrible. He would, he would not fit in the, the major, uh, mega-seeking, friendly churches today. He would never be hired in those staffs. In fact, I, I wondered this week of what some of the prosperity preachers and teachers think of these verses, verses 25 through 35. And so I looked up Joel Osteen's and Joyce Meyer's websites to hear what they had to say about these verses. Do you know what I found? Nothing. Nothing. They didn't say a thing about these verses. They skipped right over. Just so you know, friends, that's concerning. They're not to be trusted. They can draw a crowd, but they can't draw a church. Not with their gospel. And you, you understand, a crowd is not the same thing as a church. We can gather a crowd. We can gather a crowd here easier than you might think. I could spend the majority of my time as pastor researching the culture, the modern views of the culture, and adapt our church to draw a crowd. But a crowd of people is much different than a church. Gathering a church is done through evangelism and discipleship. It's done by waiting on the Lord. But here the, the crowd is coming around Jesus, and they're looking for entertainment for a show. And Jesus is going to disperse this crowd quickly. 
by talking what it means to follow him. And, and real discipleship requires four costs that Jesus mentions here. So this isn't in the outline, but it's additional. There's four things, and you see it right in the passage there. First, to hate your own family. To Second, bear your own cross. Third, to count the cost. And fourth, to renounce all that you have. And we'll walk through this here. And on this occasion, and, and many others, Jesus employs uh, uh, hyperbole here, this literary form that is known as intentional exaggeration in order to communicate an important point. And he does this throughout the Gospels, and we see it here in the first one. So first, discipleship requires you to hate your family. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. When he says hate here, he, he means to look to make this uh, statement, to, to, to look at our families in such a distant second in priority to following God. And so for everyone outside, it may look like hate. And what it means is, as a Christian, we've, we've changed our allegiance. If someone were to look at your life, they could see your complete dedication to God and not to things on earth. And not even your family could sway your allegiance to him. But this challenge, I believe, is more than just practical discipleship. I believe this challenge is about worship. Verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And what, who, who, who does Jesus think he is to make such a bold statement? Isn't he saying clearly for us that he is God? Isn't he saying that he must have soul and supreme place of affection and adoration in our lives? I mean, what sheer audacity for Jesus to say such a thing unless he is truly God? I mean, is it, God, is it shocking for God to say such a thing? Has he said it before? He has. I believe Luke 14, 26 is just a restatement of Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus is, is saying, yet again for them to understand, you shall have no other gods before me. You're not to have the God of family over Jesus. And Jesus is claiming to be God and he's demanding exclusive adoration and worship of him. Friends, he's not making a suggestion to you. This is a command. He isn't giving you an option. Jesus time and again says, it's all or nothing with me. Jesus is telling them in no uncertain terms that God must come first and Jesus is God in the flesh. There are to be no other gods before Jesus, not even the God of family. That doesn't mean you ignore your family. That would go against many scriptures that lay it out. It just means that your loves are properly ordered. All behind God. He is our first. Second, discipleship requires you to bear your own cross. The end of verse 26, it says, To hate, yes, even your own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then verse 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
Even before Jesus was crucified, the crowd would have recognized the cross as a symbol of rejection and humiliation and excruciating pain. They would have understood what the cross was. The Romans invented crucifixion, and it was a common sight in all of their colonized provinces. Every rebel condemned to crucifixion was compelled to carry his own cross, or at least the cross beam to the scene of their execution. And so to bear our own cross means we are taking it upon ourselves to head to our own self-crucifixion. It is not literal, literal death that he's talking about here. That's not what he's calling us to. Instead, it's a death to our own wants, a death to our own desires. And a Christian is one who has already died to themselves. Jesus is saying you cannot be a Christian without taking up your cross. Being a Christian means putting yourself to death. Dying to your old way of life. To bear your own cross was to consider yourself dead. To embrace the shame of being a follower of Jesus at the expense of your own life and your own reputation. It's a, it's a form of self-denial. And, and you need to understand this, friends. Cross-carrying is not optional for a Christian. It's expected, not incidental. And Jesus had no time for superficial professions of faith. He knew it was required to follow him, to follow God. And cross-carrying in our, in our world will look different for different people. For one person, it means avoiding corruption at work. For another, it means remaining sexually pure while still single. For others, it means absorbing insults of your intelligence while you continue to share the gospel with your neighbor. For still others, it requires walking with wayward children for their own spiritual good, knowing that what they need is Christ more than your avoidance or, or just to try to keep the peace. Cross-carrying isn't easy, but it's part of the Christian life. Will you submit your life to God and allow him to lead, or will you stay in the driver's seat choosing how you are to live? See, someone has to call the shots of your life. So who is it going to be? Who's calling the shots of your life? It will either be yourself or Jesus. So which is it? And you cannot claim to follow Jesus if you're not carrying your cross to die into yourself Third, discipleship requires you to count the total cost. Again, Jesus is opposed to the superficial, easy faith. No, he, he says in verse 28, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. These parables have different details, but actually sharing the same point. The builder was totally free to build or not to, as he chose. And the king who's going into war was free to make decisions on how many troops that he needed. Both of these stories are communicating to us that we need to take careful consideration before we enter into an endeavor. 
And doesn't every accomplishment and endeavor in our life involve some counting of the cost? If you want to play in the NBA, play basketball, you're going to have to practice. You're going to have to play a lot of basketball. If you want to write books for a living, you have to write a lot. If you want to be an artist, you continue to use your gifts of creativity. If you want to build a house, as he says here, you, you, you need to sketch it out, get plans drawn up, right? You need to understand how much supplies you need and if you have enough money to do it. We count the cost all the time in our life. And the same is for following Christ. If you want to follow Christ, you have to consider the cost. You have to have sober consideration of what life will look like. And in verse 33, Jesus draws it all together here of what it means to follow him. Fourth, discipleship requires you to renounce all that we have. Look at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To be a Christian means to renounce all and to follow him. What does it mean to renounce? Renounce means to to take away this trust we have in those things, to to say we're going to trust in him, not in those things, these things of life and of earth. And really, friends, there's no small print in your life. It's all or nothing for Jesus. He said last week that we looked at the narrowness of the door to enter and to follow him. And what Jesus is, is seeking isn't fair weather followers. To renounce means to give up holding on to those things in this world that bring you meaning in life and find all of your meaning in Jesus Christ alone. David Garland in his commentary alludes to Joshua's warning to Israel in Joshua 24. And if you're reading the Bible with us in our Bible plan, we read that yesterday, Joshua 24. And they are committed to serve Yahweh. And they say in verse 16, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went. Therefore, we, will, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. See, to them, to the people, it seemed like a no-brainer. We're going to serve the Lord. But Joshua, the anti-evangelist, tells them that they're not able to serve Yahweh. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. See, what is he doing here? He's he's warning them of the choice that they're making, that, that it cannot and should not be made lightly. And the people, their response in verse 21 in in Joshua 24, the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. What Joshua is saying, that they, they, they are to realize what it is to have a holy and jealous God. Have they, they thought about their own tendencies to infidelity with him? And what will happen to them when, when he consumes them. And what is he saying here? Joshua doesn't want them to reverse their commitment. That's not what he's saying. He wants them to deepen it and to think through it, to be fully committed. 
And it's the same thing here in Luke's Gospel of what Jesus is saying to the crowd and to us. This is my desire for us as a church. This is what discipleship with Jesus looks like. And friends, I want you to follow Jesus Christ with your eyes wide open. And we want to follow him with you. I don't know if you've been told by others or just kind of fallen into this trap, but following Jesus is not a solo event. We need each other. We need the church. We need this body. I need others in my life to walk with me as I follow Jesus. And I need to walk with others. And so do you, friends. So don't treat the Sunday service as an event. No, this is the gathering of the body of Christ here at Edgewood Bible. This is what discipleship looks like for us weekly. And this is the discipleship requires as Jesus walks through this. And he, he ends this passage, this chapter, with a disruption to those that think he can casually follow him. <clears throat> you might think verses 34 and 35 just kind of slipped in that Luke had a, he needed to put it somewhere, so he just snuck it in there. No, he's, he's driving home a point still. Look at verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? There's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I mean, these verses have been debated over the years. There are a few different views that might make sense, many of which... I'm sure if you have a different view, that's fine. But I, I, I believe it's, it's that Jesus knows that salt does not lose its saltiness. So therefore, he's saying, he's suggesting the impossible here. And what that means is his whole teaching from verses 25 all the way through 35 is that half-hearted disciples are no disciples at all. You can't casually follow Jesus. It's impossible for a disciple of Jesus not to be fully devoted to him. That doesn't mean, as a believer, you won't struggle with indwelling sin. And you won't have moments of weakness, weeks, months even. And you won't, it doesn't mean you won't have immaturity that you're working through. That's not what, it's, what I'm saying. It's, it's the arc of your life is one that is seeking to live for Jesus every day, every hour, and every way. You want to continue to grow. And friends, you don't have to slog away this week all on your own. Because if you're in Jesus Christ, you don't live all on your own. By the power of the risen Christ, we press on into godliness, keeping our focus on him who gives us strength, who has the spirit living inside of us. And I need to be clear to all my unbelieving friends here this morning about what Christianity teaches. There is one God who made all of us. And we have sinned against him. And we've done what we have wanted rather than what he told us to do. We've rebelled against him. And so he is rightly committed to punishing us as our sins rightly deserve. But in God's great mercy, he came in Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, and lived a perfect life with no punishment of his own to bear. And Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, all the sins of those who would turn from, from their way of life and trust in him. 
And he rose to new life and he offers us new life as well. If we'll turn from our sins and trust in him alone. So friends, I, I pray this will be true of you this morning. Pray that you would turn from your, the, the sin of trusting yourself as Savior and turn to Christ as Savior. I encourage you to talk with, with someone that invited you this morning or someone in your row about what it means to be a Christian or find me after the service. I'd love to talk with you. And Christian friends here this morning, if someone has told you in your life that all it takes to be a Christian is to repeat a prayer or just walk up front on a church Sunday morning, they didn't tell you the whole story. Anyone who's told you that coming to Christ would make all of your problems go away and that life would be easy, they haven't told you everything. They left out some key parts. And Jesus is clear for us this morning what it looks like to follow him. It's more than a casual decision and then forgetting that it happened. In the end of all this discussion, the main point is that nothing is off limits in our life to him. Following Jesus means that you have zero veto power over him and his calling upon your life. He may call you to give up financial security or creature comforts or close family or good schools for your kids or respect from others that you desire or even the long-planned hopes and desires for your life. Friends, he will give himself so that you will never know what it feels like to go without. You'll have him. So are, are we willing to hate all other relationships to receive the love of Christ? Are we willing to die to our own desires and plans to live by God's will for our lives? Are we willing to surrender our possessions if God calls us to, to receive God's kingdom? Do we believe that there's things in our life that's off limits to God? You know your life best. I cannot speak into those details. You know. And this passage is teaching us again that there's nothing off limits to Christ's lordship over you. And if you possibly believe that what Christ is asking for here, this total devotion to him, is just too much, then you haven't fully understood how completely sinful you truly are. And until you understand how dark your sin is, you won't appreciate how incredibly beautiful Jesus is and how utterly amazing what Christ did for us on the cross. See, all the comfort, all the health and, and pleasure and, and riches of this world is complete rubbish compared to the forgiveness and love and adoption and eternal life that we receive through Jesus Christ. The temporary pleasures of sin in this world cannot compare with the reward of Christ for all of eternity. So let me leave you with this question and I'm going to pray. Is Jesus worth it? Does Jesus seem worth it to you? Is Jesus more valuable than anything in this world? Let's pray. Father, we know and understand that this life is hard and there are temptations on every side of us, all encompassing us. 
temptations to draw our hearts away from total devotion to you. And yet your grace is stronger than that. And your, your patience endures with us. Lord, help us to see ourselves so we can see how different we are from you. And we pray, Lord, that those other things that are eclipsing you in our hearts, those things that are are too deeply attached to us, that that obscure you, Father, we pray that you and your love for us would relocate them. Lord, we pray that you would make yourself the exclusive object of our ultimate devotion. And Father, we pray that your Spirit would fill us and, and would win our hearts to you day by day. We, we do pray that we would live showing that we trust in you as individuals and that we trust in you as a church family. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.